Good afternoon. I'm very pleased to welcome you to this joint La Trobe Asia and Human Rights Watch event, What Indonesia's Criminal Code Means for Human Rights. This is a very important topic uh, and I'm really pleased to be able to, to host this webinar. My name is Beck Strading. I'm the Director of La Trobe Asia at La Trobe University in Melbourne. And I would like to begin this event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which La Trobe University sits. Uh, that's where I am currently located. And I would like to also pay my respect to their people, both past and present, and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who might be watching this webinar this afternoon. At the end of last year, the Government of Indonesia passed a new criminal code, including a raft of controversial measures, uh, including new morality laws and speech restrictions, including banning sex outside of marriage, insulting the president and expressing any view that runs counter to state ideology. The criminal code carries important implications for democratic freedoms in Indonesia, uh, and there are human rights concerns about the implications, particularly for women, for religious minorities and for gender diverse groups. So that's why we at La Trobe Asia are proud to be presenting this seminar with Human Rights Watch this afternoon to help us to shed light on the criminal code and to unpack what it means for Indonesians as well as for foreigners who live in or travel to Indonesia. So what does this new criminal code imply for human rights in Indonesia? How has the Indonesian public responded to this new criminal code? And what could it mean in the lead up to a general election? So I'm really pleased to be joined by our expert panel this afternoon to help us to understand this code. First, I would like to welcome Andreas Hasano, who is the researcher at Human Rights Watch in Indonesia and joining us today from Jakarta. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, Andreas. We're also joined by Dr. Dirk Thompson, who is an Associate Professor in Politics uh, and the Head of Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy here uh, at La Trobe University. Thank you, Dirk, for, for joining us, uh, expert in Indonesian politics. And last but certainly not least, we have Dr. Dina Afrianti, who is a research fellow at the La Trobe Law School at La Trobe University, uh, and similarly an expert on uh, Indonesian law and politics uh, in her own right. Thank you for joining us, Dina. So I'm going to start with you, Andreas. Uh, so in December, as I said earlier, Indonesia passed a new criminal code criminalising sex out of marriage uh, alongside a number of other uh, initiatives. So I'm hoping that you might be able to start off the conversation today by providing us some background on the bill. Where did it come from and what is it seeking to do? Well, this bill had been deliberated for decades. The discussion to introduce an Indonesian mate criminal code had been going on since before I was born in the 1960s, six decades on the debate. But it became serious under President Jokowi administration. It was almost passed in August 2019, but there were massive protests at the time. If my memory does not betray me, more than 30 cities having protests. Uh, 
basically the protesters, mostly young people, say that this is going to disturb their life, uh, violating women, gender, sexual, and religious minorities, as well as freedom of expression, freedom of association. Uh, of course, uh, Human Rights Force, and the United Nations, and many other organizations, the Press Council in Jakarta, the National Commission on Violence Against Women, an Indonesian state body, all agree that this new law that was passed uh, last December is violating international human rights standards. Uh, in fact, six experts of the United Nations uh, wrote a long letter in November last year telling the Indonesian parliament not to pass the bill as what it was. Uh, but, you know, finally it was passed to use the word of a advisor, an advisor to the vice president, it was a bill that was a compromise, quote unquote, between the ulamas and the yuris. That was a very important characterization that it was a compromise between the ulamas and the yuris. Not the political parties, but the ulamas and the ahli hukum pidana, the yuris on criminal law. Uh, it has a three-year preparation, meaning that it will only be implemented as of December 2025. We are very concerned. We had been calling on the Indonesian government to amend the law because it will uh, violate not only LGBT, the rights of LGBT people, uh, women, and also religious minorities, but also it will affect if this is what they can understand, foreign investment. Uh, it will, this law will go into the matrix of investment in Indonesia. Uh, I had been asked by three times by American uh, companies and also European companies to brief them about the content of this law and how it will affect uh, their businesses in Indonesia. Last but not the least, uh, women's rights group, especially health and reproductive rights group, they are worried that it will affect uh, women's health. You know, promoting contraception will be criminalized. Uh, doing abortion with or without the agreement of the pregnant woman will also be criminalized. <clears throat> it means that for human rights was it will increase the risk of teen pregnancy, perkawinan dini in Bahasa Indonesia, perkawinan anak, children having to get married, or unplanned, unwanted pregnancy. And of course, in the long run, two decades, three decades from now, we are going to see the impact in terms of demography in Indonesia. So that is what, what is worrying about this new criminal code. So you've given us a sense of some of the specific implications, and I'm hoping that we can 
dig into, as you, as you call it, the content of the law a little bit further here, Andreas. I mean, Human Rights Watch Indonesia has described this as disastrous, violating the rights of women, religious minorities, uh, LGBTQI uh, plus communities, and undermining, as you mentioned before, rights to speech and association. So I was wondering, you know, whether you could give us a little bit more about the specific ways in which um, the criminal code will, will violate these rights and, and some that you've already mentioned, but also maybe a sense of uh, what's at stake for these groups? You know, what, what are some of the punishments that are that are being proposed um, within the law? Uh, for instance, on extramarital sex and living together. The government like to say, don't worry, don't worry, there are safeguards on it. Of course, there are articles that says only parents, children, or spouses can file a police report against married or unmarried individual if they are having extramarital sex. Uh, since same-sex relationships are not legally recognized in Indonesia, the provision effectively criminalizes all same-sex conduct. It will also subject sex workers to criminal prosecutor. Uh, couples who live together as, quote, husband and wife, unquote, without being legally married, can be sentenced up to six months in prison. Uh, and many other prison, uh, prison uh, uh, sentences, for instance, on abortion. Uh, medical workers who help a woman to have an abortion with very few exceptions, you know, uh, defect or rape or incest, uh, they will also be sentenced to prison term. People, non-medical workers who promote, let's say, condoms or morning after pill can be criminalized. Uh, again, some, some years in, in prison, some months in prison. Uh, it will diminish free exchange of vital health information, including by teachers, because teachers are not medical workers, by parents, parents are supposedly not medical workers, the media, journalists, and community members, and especially for volunteers. There are so many volunteers, Rela One in Indonesia on, contra, on family planning. It set back women's and girls' rights under international law to receive sex education, sexual education, as well as protect their sexual and reproductive health and make their own choices about having children. So this is uh, some, some of the things that, that can be criminalized. Or on blasphemy, for instance, the blasphemy, the religion part had been expanded uh, into uh, from one article uh, in the current criminal code to six articles. Uh, it basically restricts anyone other than uh, certain individual, in, in this case, of course, ulama, to, to talk about critical refuse of, of recognized religion. Indonesia has six recognized religion, Islam, Protestantism, Catholicism, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Confucianism. Those that, that consider to to commit blasphemy against one of the six religions could be jailed up to three years in prison, which is 
reduced from five years uh, of the current code. Of course, there is a prison reduction, but still, it is going to prison for uh, discussing, you know, critically about a religion. Because of the nature of existing religion in Indonesia, meaning Islam is the biggest, the majority, the biggest religion in Indonesia, 88% of the population, it means that it will strengthen the notion that Islam is the first among equals, among the six. And it will discriminate against those outside the six, uh, you know, Baha'i or uh, Islamic denomination that are considered to be non-mainstream, Shi'ah uh, Islam, Ahmadiyya Islam, or new religion like Mila Abraham, uh, the risk for these minorities will keep on going. Uh, the, the risk of being charged with blasphemy and then go to prison. Well, thank you for that explanation of some of the, you know, it's a sweeping sort of reform that you've outlined there. And Dina, I was hoping to bring you in here. As Andrea said, this is uh, something that's been in the works for a long time, over six decades. So I'm hoping that you might be able to put this into a kind of historical, legal, political context in terms of Indonesia's relationship with civil liberties, uh, with um, liberties around uh, religion and freedoms regarding things like sex, sexuality and gender rights. Thanks, Beck. Uh, yeah, um, thank you so much, uh, Andreas. Uh, it is uh, generally true that sex, sexuality, gender issues have traditionally been defined in cultural and religious terms in Indonesia. This means that uh, the modern liberal approach such as freedom, uh, equality is broadly perceived as an uh, imported concept, uh, as a Western and also as a foreign ideology. Uh, although equally Islamic religious norms is also an important concept, imported concept from the Middle East. Uh, in this case. Uh, so talking about the historical context of the gender struggle, uh, I would like to um, ask to remember the stories of uh, Kartini's writing, The Indonesia First Feminist, uh, and also the result of the first women's congress in the early 1920s uh, during the decolonization struggle in which they embrace liberal norms uh, as they called for freedom and also for gender equality. However, Indonesia is a nation state built nationalist ideologies, uh, which carry a certain paternalistic approach in which the notion of a traditional family uh, is the basis of the political ideology. Um, uh, in 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 um, we 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 understand it as a integralist approach uh, within Indonesian uh, um, national ideology, uh, and so the state's gender ideology is uh, reflected, for example, uh, in the early period since Indonesia independence, uh, the 1974 marriage law, uh, which legislates uh, gender relation in marriage. Uh, for example, it regulates that marriage is between men and women, 
and it also uh, have provisions on the roles and responsibilities between men, between husband and wives. It also regulates, for example, that men are allowed to take second, third, fourth wife uh, with the permission of their wives, the first wife, obviously, or the second wife, if it is the third wife, uh, and so on and so forth, uh, on the ground that the wife become ill or become uh, permanently disabled or being infertile. So you can see in there that the relationship between the state and also gender relations has always been um, uh, strained and also the idea and also uh, what the provisions in the marriage law was very much influenced by the, the by the teachings uh, of Islam. Uh, of course, uh, the conservative interpretations of the Islamic teachings. So for, for, for me, the provisions in the criminal code, like what Pa Andreas has explained, uh, that limits freedom uh, is not something new. Uh, this is because um, religiously conservative views and aspect of Islamic teaching have often driven the development of law, the marriage law that I just mentioned before, and also after reformasi, as soon as Indonesia uh, began its reform, uh, democratic reform in 1998, we've seen how uh, Sharia-based region, provincial regulations and also regional regulations uh, were are introduced. Uh, many of these limits women's freedoms, they regulate women's morality, uh, they regulate the way women should dress in public, uh, and also limit women's freedom of movement. Uh, and in 2004, uh, the anti-domestic violence law, it was also sparked debates within the Muslim communities of how uh, domestic violence should be, inter uh, should be defined, because according to the conservatives, it is not a violence when it is not violent when husband asks their wives to um, have sexual intercourse. Uh, so there is no rights for women to say no, etc. Uh, and also in 2008, we've seen the uh, the debate around the anti-pornography law. Again, uh, it religious conservatives influence and shape the debate uh, and also most recently the, the 2022 uh, anti-sexual violence law. Uh, it took almost seven years for women's rights and uh, gender uh, equality advocates to finally able to see the, the anti-sexual violence bill uh, deliberated by the parliament. During the course of the discussion in the parliament, uh, I was observing this closely from their YouTube channel that the discussion around women's uh, rights uh, are very much defined in terms of uh, how the interpretation of Islamic teachings are conservatively used by the members of parliament also by, and also by the, by the uh, Islamist groups uh, outside parliament. Uh, so, yes, I think uh, that's very much uh, tell us that uh, the, the relationship between the state and religion has always uh, been um, uh, a factor in terms of how women's rights can uh, be enhanced and also how gender equality has progressed in Indonesia. 
And I wanted to to press you on on the role of religious conservatism in in particular uh, in shaping this decision and picking up on a couple of things that Andrea said earlier around, you know, the the fact that this was a compromise um, and also going back to this idea that this is something that has been going on for six decades. So I guess my question is, is the role of religious conservatism intensifying in Indonesia? Is that what enabled this um, code to appear and, and successfully get through Parliament now? Is that because, um, you know, we're seeing a, a deeper role for religious conservatism or, or conservative interpretations of religion? Uh, yeah, the criminal code is, I, I, I would say, is a continuation of the heavy influence of religious conservatives in lawmaking. Uh, during, like I said previously, during the parliamentary committee consultation over the anti-sexual violence bill, for example, I can see how religious conservatives are strongly motivated to prevent or remove any influence or any values, any uh, 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 any values they believe to be Western uh, Western social norms. Uh, for example, the provision around uh, consent in sexual relation in the draft bill, in the anti-sexual violence draft bill, is seen by the conservative members of the parliament and also conservative groups outside parliament as endangering Indonesia's cultural identity. And that consent, the idea of consent in sexual relations, uh, belongs to the Western society only. So... To me, to to understand that Indonesia, uh, to, it is also important to see this in the context that uh, um, that Indonesians live uh, in an increasingly religious society uh, where Islamic norms are considered acceptable uh, and should be the sole basis to regulate the state, the state and society. So the result is uh, the way I see it that uh, in a democratic Indonesia we are witnessing a trend in which political leadership um, are co-opting or even collaborating with conservative forces. And this uh, Indonesian observers can see this happening since um, as soon as Indonesia began its democratic reform. And obviously, I think it started uh, quite obviously since 2005 under the SBY presidency. Uh, so in the past decades, um, I think um, in, in my personal experience, I've been witnessing how, how society becoming more religious and how religious practices are becoming more uh, widespread and, and people are more into showing it and demonstrating it in public, uh, which is something that is quite different with Indonesia in the 1990s, for example, or Indonesia in the 1980s. So we are witnessing then the convergence of religious and nationalist conservatisms, uh, producing a new brand, what a new brand of religious nationalisms. But Andreas mentioned that the passing of the criminal code is actually um, co- uh, quoted the the speaker from the vice president office is a compromise between the ulamas and the the juries. Uh, I would like to say that that's. That's that's the way I see it, like the religious conservatives who are inspired by conservative readings of Islamic teachings. And the nationalist, on the other hand, uh, is inspired by family values and dominant nationalist or nativist uh, ideology, 
both groups then uh, sort of like meet at some point, uh, uh, having sharing the same interest to reject Western ideas of freedom and equality. So then what we can see in the criminal code and also the passing of the uh, other legislation in Indonesia that limit and also uh, suppress uh, women's freedom uh, and equality. Thank you, Dean. I'm glad that you uh, mentioned earlier in your comments what this means for democracy in Indonesia. And Dirk, I mean, you're a world-leading scholar on uh, democracy in Indonesia. So in your view, is this a sign of regression or backsliding in Indonesian democracy, or is this more of a, a sign that uh, it's always, for as long as Indonesia has been a democracy, it's been an illiberal democracy and it has its sort of own unique expression of democracy? Well, it's hard not to see as a sign of further regression, um, especially because I think throughout last year, 2022, it seemed um, as if this trend that has been going on for several years now was slowing down a bit. Um, Dina mentioned the anti-sexual violence bill that was passed in 2022, seemingly against the trend, seemingly against the odd um, after yes, seven years of uh, deliberation and a really, a really strong concerted effort by women's rights groups to, bring, to push that through. Um, there were also a few other sort of developments perhaps in 2022 where it seemed as if the the democratic decline had sort of reached its limits, perhaps. If you if you look at what's been happening in Indonesia since, say, 2016, 2017, um, almost every year things seem to be getting worse. There seem to be more curbs on uh, political freedoms and civil liberties. Um, the government seemed to take an even harder line towards criticism, etc. It seemed as if that had sort of plateaued perhaps a bit in 2022. Um, there were no, you know, new drastic um, legislation. For example, if we think about the previous years where we had this controversial omnibus law on job creation that impinged on um, various uh, freedoms, on environmental protections, on um, labor rights, etc., um, we had the in 2019 the revisions to the law um, for the Corruption Eradication Commission, uh, which significantly weakened that commission. Um, so it seemed as if the worst was over. Perhaps in 2022, it seemed as if um, the government had sort of sealed all these um, big ticket items that it wanted to, that were ultimately detrimental to de democracy. But the criminal code was still sort of unfinished business in a way, as Andreas mentioned earlier. Um, it had been, you know, it has been discussed for a very long time, but particularly um, in 2019, it was caught up in the protests that were targeted maybe primarily at the revisions of the um, anti-corruption commission law. But because the um, criminal code was discussed at the same time, the protests were also against that. And in 2019, then the reforms were, or the, the revisions were um, delayed. Um, so that it's now come back was, yeah, was on many fronts very disappointing um, for observers of Indonesian democracy. Um, so yeah, it's hard not to see it as a, a further step sort of towards regression. Of course, 
Indonesian democracy since 1998 has not progressed towards the Western-style liberal democracy. That might be true. Um, but nevertheless, before, say, 2014-15, um, there was a lot more public space for dissent, for criticizing the government. Um, there was not, not such a really um, seemingly overwhelming comprehensive control of political institutions by oligarchic interests, um, all of that has intensified. The role of the military has picked up again um, under the Jokowi presidency, particularly in sort of um, uh, hotspots like Papua, but also in various um, projects that uh, Jokowi is pursuing for his inf infrastructure drive. So there have been yeah, numerous signs that say since 2016-17, um, things have gotten worse. It seemed as last year perhaps that as if that trend had sort of come to a bit of a halt or at least slowed down. But um, yeah, the criminal court seemed to sort of um, pick that up again. One thing that, that I would like to say in that context is one characteristic perhaps of this democratic decline in the last few years was that the political atmosphere was um, quite tense between the Jacobi government and the conservative religious groups on the other hand. Um, Jacobi, many of Jacobi's, the Jacobi government's sort of illiberal measures that they took were targeted at the religious conservatives. But now what we saw in the criminal code, um, what's been described as a compromise, um, I actually, I, I don't really see it as a compromise because in a compromise, both sides have to make some concessions, right, and don't get what they want, right? But it seemed in this criminal code, both sides that had been at odds for so long in the last few years it seemed as if they got almost everything they wanted in this, right? It was a meeting of the minds, right? The conservative nationalists who were concerned about the state institutions, like that the president must not be insulted and that Indonesia needs its own penal code rather one inherited from the colonial era, et cetera. They pushed through this sort of nationalist conservatism um, and the religious conservatives on the other side, um, they pushed through a lot of these moral issues that they have been wanting for a long time. Um, so, yeah, for, you know, progressive liberal Indonesians, minorities, women, this is a yeah, pretty bad outcome. Yeah, and it's uh, interesting. There's an election coming up next year and just reflecting back, I mean, President Jokowi was cast particularly in the West as being, you know, a, a more progressive uh, leader, particularly uh, before he was elected in his, his first term and there were alternatives that were cast as being more con conservative um, that, than uh, President Jokowi. So I, I guess this is a question about to what extent uh, has the president been uh, forced into supporting this kind of criminal code? Is this a popular move from the is, is this part of the reason why uh, the criminal code's got through is because of electoral concerns, the fact that this might be seen as a popular move? Or so what are the what are the forces that have moved uh, the administration in this direction? Yeah, I would not say that Jokowi has been forced into um, doing this. Um, he was, um, he's been in charge um, for many of the um, yeah, measures that have been taken in the last few years that are signs of growing illiberalism. Um, he himself, you know, has pushed for some of these um, regulate rules and regulations uh, that have been there in the past. I mentioned the um, this controversial job creation law, for example. 
Um, that was challenged afterwards and required a presidential decree um, in order to actually um, make it come into force. And uh, Jacobi issued that decree just um, just very recently. Um, he, yeah, you're, you're right when you say that before his first election in 2014 in the West and, and in Indonesia as well, as well, in fact, um, he was cast as a bit of a, you know, sort of liberal reformer, perhaps as a hope for um, a revival of Indonesia's democratic spirit. Um, but I think that image sort of disappeared fairly quickly. Um, it was to some extent, to some extent driven by um, developments that Jokowi surely didn't anticipate. Um, there was the mass mobilization by Islamists against one of Jokowi's allies um, in 2016, 2017, in the context of the gubernatorial election in Jakarta. And a lot of the, what Jokowi did afterwards, which was targeted at conservative Muslims, um, more radical Muslims, was triggered by what happened there in 2016, 2017. Um, but since then, as I think Dina said earlier on, both of these forces, the sort of the conservative nationalists who want to sort of revive old narratives of Indonesia, um, you know, of Indonesian pride in the international arena, um, anti-Western, anti-colonial rhetoric, both these groups as well as conservative Islamic groups um, have been pushing for this um, criminal code now. And I think ahead of ahead of next election, no one wanted to be seen in the political elite of opposing this. Um, the government in particular has driven, or is still in the process probably, um, a campaign of trying to sell this code to Indonesians. Um, they're using, you know, on social media influencers, buzzers to sort of spread the message that this is something good for Indonesians. Um, this is shedding the colonial era heritage. Um, and if you, as a member of parliament or a political party, if you oppose that, um, you would probably damage your chances for the next election. So no one really was in a position to actually oppose this. Um, it's got fairly broad consensus, but very broad consensus amongst the elite. And as Andrea said, it will take three years to come into effect. And over these three years, um, there is, of course, a chance for a constitutional challenge, perhaps, against this. But precisely because we've got elections coming up in 2024, I think chances are that this discourse will be overtaken by all the talk about the campaign for the 2024 election and that it will sort of disappear in the background and that it will be very difficult to actually challenge this. So I think it's probably there to stay and we'll have to see who will win in 2024 um, and what whoever the new president will be will do about it. Well, that's, I mean, that's interesting. And, and Andreas, I'll bring you back in here. I mean, what options exist? We've got this sort of three-year period uh, before it comes into effect. What options exist for Indonesians to contest the laws? You know, what's the role of, of activism or civil society within Indonesia? What's the, what can Human Rights Watch do, for example, to try to ensure that the, the criminal code doesn't actually come into effect? Uh, very important questions. Domestically, there should be judicial petitions to amend the criminal code in this current three-year period. It should be done, even if we are going to lose. But now, internationally, it is important to 
ask countries, friends of Indonesia, including Australia, including European Union, including the US, Japan, and even China, <coughs> to ask the Indonesian government to pressure, especially businesses, because many of these businesses are, you know, Apple, Google, whatever, they are doing businesses in Indonesia. And their employees, 99% are Indonesian citizens, are at risk of being arrested, being harassed, detained, being facing quote-unquote selective enforcement of this criminal code. They should speak up. They should ask whoever counterpartner that they have within Indonesia, Jakarta, to say, hey, look, guys, we cannot do business in this kind of environment. It will open, increase bribery. Selective enforcement means bribe, extortion. Uh, dysfunctional families can use this criminal code as a weapon to charge or to arrest their, you know, uh, uh, husband and wife that are already separated, maybe over property dispute, the husband can file a lawsuit against his wife that all this estranged from him because she has uh, a new boyfriend or parents not happy with their uh, LGBT children can weaponize the law to criminalize their own children or especially their children partners. So this kind of thing should be a concern for, for businesses, international, multinational businesses operating in Indonesia, and also uh, places like Canberra, uh, Washington, D.C., Tokyo, uh, London, Brussels, and many other places around the world. So, Dina, I wanted to ask you this question as, as well about the role of the international community, you know, states as well as non-governmental organisations or, as Andrea said, businesses might be important here. So what role exists for showing support for affected communities in Indonesia? Because it seems to me like there might be a bit of a, a tension or a, a problem uh, for, for international community intervention, if there is this really strong narrative that is anti-colonial and anti-West, then international pressure might actually sort of consolidate that narrative and force the government to double down rather than to change. I'm wondering whether you see that as a potential issue for how international activism might be able to, to create change. Mm. Yeah, thanks, Beck. Yeah, I think the scope for international uh, influence is, uh, I would say, relatively limited. Uh, in my experience, it is uh, important, I think, to base any commentary or analysis on the existing constitutional, legal and policy framework. So hopefully the well-established and broad human rights protections in that framework can provide a counter to the potentially negative outcomes. Uh, but I think I would also like to add that my experience uh, in a range of advocacy programs involving gender equality and disability, however, uh, tells me that there is a widespread ignorance uh, of existing laws and policies, uh, as well as entrenched uh, conservative mindset in, in the Indonesian community. So, in the, but I think uh, it is also important to remember that Indonesia's own highly capable civil society sector is very well equipped uh, to continue to promote 
working with the community, working with the community, promoting inclusive um, and equitable policy and administration. So I guess the international community could, of course, continue to provide support uh, through various aid programs, for example, to civil society organizations in Indonesia. Um, again, uh, coming from academic uh, backgrounds, I think scholarship programs for higher degree studies uh, might also provide valuable uh, opportunities for Indonesian academics, researchers, students, and also public servants to deepen their own knowledge uh, through overseas studies. I think uh, having those uh, experience living in uh, Western countries might sort of like give them a better um, experience or uh, encounters with what they often used to hear about Western cultures or Western ideologies. So yeah, I guess that's that's probably how I would uh, respond to that question back. Thank you. Uh, I'll, I'll ask Dirk one more question, but if we've got questions from the audience, please feel free to put them into the Q&A because I'm not far off from uh, asking questions from the audience. But Dirk, I mean, I hesitate to ask this question uh, because, you know, there is concern in the Australian media that this is likely to impact Australians travelling to, to Indonesia and that, you know, in term, from a human rights perspective, I think the focus should be really on how Indonesians are affected by the criminal code. But to sort of zoom out from that concern, you know, this is this has the potential to be an issue in the Australia-Indonesia bilateral relationship. I mean, how does a country like Australia um, press Indonesia on issues to do with human rights? Has Australia ever really had much success uh, in this area in the past um, is, is, is a question that, that I have as, as well. And, and also there's a bit of an issue with how Australia sees uh, its strategic interests in the region. It wants to develop bilateral relations with Indonesia. And in the past, it has tended to prioritise a good relationship in a pragmatic or a realist way rather than perhaps a principled or values-based way. So I guess this is a long-winded way of asking how is this likely to affect Australia-Indonesia relations and uh, do you see Australia really doing much about it? Well, <laughs> well I think you've, in, in the question there were already parts of the answer, I suppose. Um, <laughs> I... I don't see that Australian policy towards Indonesia will change um, dramatically because of that. Um, I think it's quite likely that, um, you know, through diplomatic channels, um, disquiet may be expressed. Um, but overall, there are bigger issues at stake for Australia in the region, as you say, strategic interests, economic interests um, that are probably likely to prevail. Um, I also, Andreas raised um, the, the role of international business in this. Um, I wish that, you know, international businesses were paying more attention to these kinds of issues, but I think the track record there is probably not particularly strong. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm a bit sceptical as to the, the impact that this will have on 
Indonesia's relations with other countries, as you said, especially now um, that it has just been passed in the run-up to the election. I think um, it might even be counterproductive because uh, there will probably be a lot of nationalist posturing um, in the run-up to the election. As I said, what happens after the next president is elected um, is, yeah, m- might be a different story, although looking at the candidates um, who are leading in the polls, um, I don't, I wouldn't expect overly much change there as well. Um, there's also been a f- you know, strong degree of continuity in Indonesia's foreign policy and dealing um, with the region. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I think it's it's primarily really a domestic issue. As we said, it's um, Indonesians will be affected by this. I mean, the odd foreigner may be caught up in it here and there. But um, ultimately, yeah, it's it's an issue for um, domestically for Indonesians to, to challenge, to try to put pressure um, on the court system, on the government to yeah, perhaps um, review it as in the law or certain passages and at least to keep the conversation about it up. As Andrea said, you know, a challenge might fail, but as long as it remains in the public domain, it shows that it's not just taken on board by everyone without uh, dissent. So, yeah, that that would be, I suppose, my answer to the question. Yeah, it's a really uh, difficult one, I think, for for the international community more broadly because of the issues around, obviously, sovereignty and intervention, uh, but also the it's the, the stickiness of this the narrative around the anti-colonial, anti-West. This is like the idea that you know human rights are some sort of Western construct seems to be uh, quite a powerful one that is difficult to undo. Um, So, Andreas, I might bring the conversation back to you. I see that you've uh, already typed in an answer to a question that we have from Latrobe University's uh, Professor of Political Communication, Andrea Carson, which is, what do you anticipate will be the impact on journalists and journalism, and will the revised criminal code likely have a chill effect on both journalists and sources? How do you see this playing out. So I wanted to bring the conversation back around the issues of freedom of press, freedom, freedom of expression, freedom of association, uh, and uh, in response to Andrea's question, but also some of the, the discussion that we've just had around, you know, whether um, business can can be, I mean, you mentioned that, that businesses might be able to kind of to get on board, whether one way of tackling this issue is through economic development, the economic incentives to kind of change the criminal code, how that might be mobilised to counter this other narrative around anti-West, anti-colonial values. I would like to show you an opinion piece today at the Jakarta Post. This is an opinion piece, a century of the Nadatul Ulama, Aswaja, or this is Sunni basically, Fikih is Theology, New Platform of Islam, by Ahmad Swaidi, February 7, 2023. The Nadatul Ulama, the largest Islamic organization here, is celebrating its 100th century in existence. There are two paragraphs that I would like to read for all of us here. Among Islamic and Muslim majority states, the UN's existence has never been questioned because it strongly legitimizes their statehood and recognizes their boundaries. However, 
the universal declaration of human rights uh, has never been accepted or adopted fully by Islamic or Muslim majority state, which consider the declaration is contrary to or at least different from Islamic Sharia. As a result, equality of citizen, you know, including for Christian, for non-Muslim, for women, for LGBT people, is still a problem in many Islamic and Muslim majority states. I agree. Yeah. Almost all Islamic and Muslim majority states place Islam high as the basis for their constitution, which has an implication in the treatment of their own citizens, the minorities. Even in Indonesia, whose constitution is not based on Islam, but on the state ideology Pancasila and the state motto unity in diversity, the Muslim majority is still often involved in discrimination by enforcing the state to support them. So if we take a look at report after report that had been published for, in this case, Human Rights Watch, we can see that the discrimination against minorities in Indonesia is not a new one. It's been going on since day one when Indonesia was declared independence. Uh, I would like to show you a timeline. If we take a look at this timeline, discriminating gender, sexual, and religious minorities, starting in 1946, when Indonesia established the Ministry of Religious Affairs. 1942, the definition of a religion. A religion is a religion if it is a single God, monotonous God. A prophet, some prophets, a holy book, and a global network discriminating many smaller ethnic religions in Indonesia. 1965, President Sukarno decreed the blasphemy law, maximum five years. Now, with the new code, it's three years. 1982, Suharto established the Indonesian Ulama Forum, Majlis Ulama Indonesia, which facilitate the discrimination against non-Muslim minorities. In 2001, where Sumatra issued the first mandatory hijab regulation in Indonesia, now Indonesia has at least 64 mandatory hijab rules, effective in 24 out of 34 provinces. 2004, the parliament moved the Blas Miller office from the Ministry of Religious Affairs to the Attorney General office, meaning that now, uh, as of 2004, uh, the Blas Miller office has the power to charge anyone considered to commit blasphemy. 2006, President Yudhoyono shifted the principle of religious freedom into religious harmony with the majority-minority approach in permitting uh, the building of a house of worship. 2014, uh, Aceh Parliament passed the first Islamic criminal code in Indonesia. And last year, the first, of course, Islamic-inspired criminal code nationwide. So that is the timeline. This is to reiterate what Ahmad Swahidi uh, wrote today at the Jakarta Post. So this is been going on for more than seven decades since independence. 
Thank you for that. We've got a, a couple of other questions here that I might, um, Dina and then Dirk, I might get you to, to respond to, to some of this as well. Uh, one of them is that it's uh, just on the back of, of Andrea's question about um, journalism. It's not just journalists, but it's also writers, people in theatre, painters, artists who are concerned about the implication of the laws for their work. So, Dina, maybe you've got some reflections about the legal implications for artistic communities. Uh, but also there's another question here about um, what the panellists make of the media coverage of the issue internationally in Southeast Asia and inside Indonesia. Um, for example, there has been a lot of criticism of the, quote, Bali bonk ban frame. Uh, and what could journalists and analysts do better? Uh, maybe, Dirk, you've got a view on that particular question. But, Dina, I might pass the virtual microphone over to you. Thanks, Beck. Um, I'm not sure if I can uh, provide answer to the questions in regards to arts, since it's not, I have no uh, knowledge enough, uh, knowledgeable enough to answer that questions, but I probably can share some of the uh, impact uh, on this criminal code to, uh, um, to uh, sorry, to, to, to civil society activists, uh, in which case they are also now uh, scared uh, of mentioning uh, the term or the word LGBTIQ, for example, so they're very uh, aware that there, there are risks for uh, bringing that up in their conversation when they talk about equality, when they talk about uh, discriminations, because often for civil society activists, uh, the minority groups that they will that will comes to uh, the conversation is not only women but also people with disabilities and uh, people with different. Uh, uh, sexual orientation. So uh, so that criminal court really, uh, uh, you know, in everyone's mind. Uh, and that, uh, you know, in my last visit to Indonesia, for example, uh, they're worried about, uh, you know, um, uh, accidentally saying that words because that might be considered, you, you, you never know who is in your, uh, in that place who, you know, people who are uh, coming to your events or, you know, so, and, and people can just bring that up uh, to the authority and then that's it. Uh, so, yeah, I guess probably not answer your questions, but probably can offer you some other example of how the impact of this code to the civil society movement. No, the really important points that you've raised there, Dina, and of course, um, you know, it, it, the, the other affected community might be academics uh, and the ability to do research on and in, in, in Indonesia. Uh, so, Dirk, I know I asked you a question about the international reporting of this issue, and I would like to get your thoughts on that. But if you also have any thoughts on whether this criminal code has um, implications for academic research, it would be good to hear as well. Yeah, well, the bigger context for that is that um, I mentioned earlier that there have been a whole range of controversial laws being passed in the last few years. There was also a science law plus, passed, I think, in 2021, if I'm not mistaken, um, and a new agency to um, to organize and coordinate research in Indonesia. And if those two developments 
uh, in combination with the new criminal code um, certainly has many academics worried about um, doing research in Indonesia, especially on sensitive topics. Um, but um, I wanted to add just briefly also on, on the, the previous question about, you know, the arts, writers. Um, I think there was there were very similar concerns after the passing of the anti-pornography law in 2008, um, how that would impact um, artistic expression. And I think if you, if you look back now at how long that's been in place, um, it, it could be read both ways. Um, ultimately, there have been a relatively small number, I suppose, of um, high-profile cases where artists have been affected um, by that law, but there have been cases. And the fact that the law is there has this effect on many artists that they think twice now what they put into their works, right? And with the criminal code now being passed, it adds an additional layer, I suppose, of... Um, you know, which might trigger, you know, self-censorship in artistic expression, just simply in order not to touch on any sensitivities, um, whether that's related to sexuality or to religion. Um, so, yeah, it certainly is adding another uh, layer to this. Um, as far as the media coverage um, outside Indonesia is concerned, uh, I think my concern when reading some of the coverage was mainly um, that what one can understand that foreign journalists have to speak to the audience in their countries, but the focus should really be first and foremost on Indonesians who are affected by this rather than tourists going to Bali who may be caught up in this. Um, the main, you know, the main targets of this law are Indonesian citizens. Um, they will be the ones mostly affected, and it would be good if um, foreign journalists could also highlight that. Couldn't agree more, Dirk. Um, so thank you to our panel. I'm afraid that we are all out of time uh, this afternoon, but thank you to Andres for joining us in Jakarta and um, Dick and Dina. Uh, that was really insightful uh, and I'm really pleased that we were able to develop, I think, a, a stronger appreciation for what the criminal code might mean and to put it in that historical, political and legal context. So I'm really grateful for your time and for sharing your expertise Expertise. Uh, and for those in the audience, please follow us on Twitter at Latrobe Asia or join our mailing list to find more details for online or hybrid events, uh, as well as Latrobe Asia publications. But for now, I wish you all a good night.